When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Listen, I want to tell you about my good friend, Matan Griffel, and his website, OneMonthRails.com. Now, Matan is a brilliant guy. I first met him when he took our storytelling for business workshop at the Story Studio, and now he has this incredibly successful business. One Month Rails is the best-selling online coding class. It's a class that teaches you how to code, how to create your very own website all by yourself, in just one month, Matan is an expert Rails teacher. He's taught at NYU, Bloomberg, and Forbes. You can stop waiting to find that techie, that, that co-founder for your business. You can do it yourself now. And the best thing about the course is that you actually build a real app. By the end of one month Rails, your app will be live. You'll have built it from scratch. If you go to the site, you can see all the student success stories. Some of them are really moving. Matan was telling me about this guy, Mike Wyatt, a former factory worker in Missouri, who is now making double his salary with the skills he learned in one month from one month Rails. There's hours of easy to follow videos, hands-on exercises, and meetups. So sign up now at onemonthrails.com slash risk. That's onemonthrails.com slash risk. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Bubamara Brass Band behind me now. We're calling today's episode My Old Man. All four of these stories are about dads. And it just occurred to me that they're pretty cool dads in this particular little roundup. I'm used to dads showing up in stories kind of being on the more jackassy side, folks. An undulating mob of bastards and bird brains. But the dads we bring you today are an okay bunch. You know, when I separated from my husband, I was 40. And I thought, oh my God, how am I going to date again at this age? You know, like the Louis C.K. idea. But I didn't realize that there's a whole trendy genre of dudes in the gay community's eyes called daddies we're we're appreciated simply for being you know a little bit schlubbier <laughs> and on the worn out end there's even a new york magazine cover rise of the daddies a sexy niche so I spent my 20s when I was single, just completely uncomfortable in my own skin. And in my 40s, now that I'm in this, like, hip demographic, without, by the way, ever having to go through the very real work of being a daddy, <laughs> I'm having a whale of a time. <laughs> in a little bit. <clears throat> We're going to hear from Gretchen Mentor, a writer here in New York City. But before that, we're going to hear from Chesley Calloway. Chesley Calloway. 
<laughs> it's an amazing name. And Chesley is an amazing guy. He is the host of, I would say, one of the very most important stand-up comedy shows in New York City right now. Comedy is a Second Language is every Thursday at Cabin. And it really is something to see. So without further ado, here he is at the Risk Live show in New York City. This is Chesley Calloway with a story we call Eye on the Wind. I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and this story is about my dad who grew up in uh, rural Mississippi. I'm talking about like the Gulf Coast, Mississippi, and, and like most people around his age in that, uh, in that place and time, he is a, uh, a huge redneck, that guy. And, uh, but unlike, yeah, unlike most rednecks, though, he has something a little special. He, uh, he's actually like a redneck mixed with a hippie, if that makes any sense. He showed me this photograph one time, and it was a picture of him uh, leaning against a motorcycle, his, his motorcycle, with long flowing hair, cowboy boots, and in one hand he's like showing the peace sign, and the other hand he's holding up like a big fat pistol. It's like, oh, like, like, oh my god, like that's, <laughs> what a sight. Uh, I mean, I appreciated his hippie side for sure, because he had a lot of friends that would like drop the n-word like because they were rednecks and uh they were racist but he always made it a point to like tell us like look that word is wrong don't use it under any circumstances which i appreciated you know that was his hippie side his love and equality and uh yeah that having been said he just wasn't really around much when i was growing up he did um refrigeration work in south louisiana where where we grew up which there's no shortage of down there it's very very hot if you've never been down there he was always doing that. He was hunting and fishing all the time. He was always in the outdoors. So my mom basically raised me and my, my two younger brothers. And uh, she worked full time, then also worked like extra jobs, like sold Tupperware and stuff to keep us in private schools because the public schools in Louisiana are just abysmal. So uh, but yeah, my dad, like most of my childhood, he was just in the woods. Like that's just, oh, dad, he's in, he's in the woods this weekend again. It's either hunting season or deer season or there's always some season going on, preparing for the season. Every once in a while, he would bring me out into the woods, and it was, I hated it because I always was so inept at outdoorsman stuff. Like, his friends would make fun of me, and it was so annoying. My dad, who went by Sonny, his name is Chesley Calloway as well, but I, my, my grandfather, he went by Chess. So it, no one told me I could just make up a nickname. I wish someone would have told me that before I'd have stuck with Chesley. It's pretty annoying. Um, I probably would have been like a Ninja Turtle or something ridiculous that it told me. They're like his friends would be like, "Oh, Sonny's kid, he can't put a, a cricket on a hook, man. Hey, how's he gonna catch a fish if he can't bait a hook?" You know, like it's like I don't know. He's like, yeah, "You can't kill a deer if you can't tell the direction of the wind." Come on, like they just laugh at me all the time. I'm just like, man, and I I hated it because I was embarrassed. I felt like a you know a burden, and you know I would rather be at home playing Super Nintendo anyway. So like I didn't want to be there. So yeah, it was just always you know. There's always this gulf, this disconnect between me and my dad. And I never thought it would really ever be bridged until one day when I was 15 years old, I was at my friend Ryan's house and we were sitting out on his back patio and uh, he busted out this little tiny uh, bag of marijuana, a little dime bag, little tiny thing. And I was like, and I was too scared. I was like, oh, like drugs. Like I was from, you know, the D.A.R.E. program. I was like, oh, all drugs lead to like immediate certain death. You know, that's what I was taught. <laughs> and so I was, you know, pretty terrified. But he, as soon as he opened it up and, and the, the scent hit my nose, I was just like, oh my God, I was transported back to being a little kid. I had this total flashback and I was just like a toddler and I walked into like my parents' room and I don't know if he didn't see me, but my dad was in there with his like shaggy beard and his long hair, like flannel shirt. And I'm walking in, you know, a little scrawny me, a little He-Man, you know, <laughs> haircut. And I'm like stumbling. And he has a Tupperware container uh, that he was peeling open. And we always were well stocked in Tupperware because of my mom's uh, job. So he peeled back this Tupperware container and that smell filled the room. And uh, I had forgotten that just entirely. Wow. And then he saw me, I get, and he saw me, he's like, well, get, he like, talked to me like a dog. He's like, get, get out of here, get, get. Like, he's like, <laughs> okay. 
But it wasn't until, you know, flash forward back to when I was 15, I was just sitting there and my friend's like, are you okay? And I'm just kind of like, oh my God, I think my dad smokes pot. Oh my God, oh no, but he's alive. I thought all those people died that smoke pot. And it was like <laughs> pot and heroin, the same thing. That's what they taught us. And so I was, you know, like, oh my, oh, was, you know, my dad was obviously still very much alive and I wanted to find out like as quickly as possible what the hell was going on. And uh, later that evening, I was bugging him to uh, take me to McDonald's, you know, like, give me some McNuggets. And he'd he'd only had like three beers. He was like, all right, I'll drive you there. (laughs) And uh, so we're in his little beat up pickup truck. And I remember being like, so dad, uh, one of my friends, I'm not telling you who, he he had a little bit of weed today. And uh, it reminded me back when we were at our old house, like the, the Tupperware container and what, what, do you, what do you think about, like, drugs? He was just like, well, I got to say, in moderation, there are some drugs that just, you know, if they don't affect the way you do your job or live your life or treat your friends, in moderation, they're all right. You know what, smoking a little grass now and then, I think it's all right, and I burnt down a whole bunch of it. That's all right. It was like, no, you know, but then, you know, drinking a six-pack after work, and I work hard, you know, all day. I, I could drink a few beers, and, but now, be careful. There are life-ruining drugs. Never do anything with, with needles. I've got friends that have died from weird diseases and overdoses and just never, never touch needles. I found out later he just actually was afraid of needles, but that probably, probably also happened. <laughs> he would pass out at the doctor's office. Uh, you know, it was like, and, and cocaine? Phew. I do not recommend cocaine. Now, in the 80s, I did a bunch of cocaine. You know, it was a goddamn snowstorm. I mean, I've I, I seen people lose their jobs and their, their house and their families because they couldn't control it. They couldn't snort cocaine in moderation. I don't recommend doing that. But, you know, if you drink a six-pack and smoke a little grass, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I was like, you know, I was stunned. I was just kind of like... Oh, that's like the exact opposite of what the dare people told me. And it was like the, the most antithetical thing, like all the authority figures in my life, you know, the pastor, my mom, the teachers, like they were all, they would have like just reeled in horror at this, uh, my dad just being like, oh yeah, drugs, come on, man, half a volume every once in a while, whatever, like it would have been. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so like, you know, it was a secret, like it would still be another year before I, before I ended up smoking because uh, I was terrified, I had like, religious guilt, so I had to work up the courage, and, you know, so it was another year that went by, but, like, I kept our secret, you know, like, our conversation, I always had it in mind, and when I finally did start smoking weed, like, everything changed, like, I got invited to go, like, to, on the hunting and fishing trips again, I hadn't gone for years, but I started to go, get invited again, not because I was good at any of that stuff, I still was terrible, but, like, I was fun to hang out with, you know, like, all the guys used to make fun of me, all of a sudden, they're, like, making sure I had a cold beer, and I was always high, you know, like, I got passed out drunk and high with those guys so many times, those guys are ridiculous, but, (laughs) and I asked them, like, you guys were always so mean to me when I was little, like, what was that about, like, you guys always laughed at me, they're like, oh, we weren't trying to be mean, we were just real high, we laughed at everything, (laughs) like, like, I had a complex, thanks a lot. And so, you know, I learned to, you know, bait the hook and read the wind, and I killed a couple deer. My dad helped me get a pickup truck and a true sign of redneckery. Like, it was built 10 years before I was born, and it broke down all the time, big mud tires. But when it broke down, like, my dad and I, you know, we would fix it together. You know, like, we were, we were friends. We were buddies. And we had a, oh, it was good times. He would tell me, like, good ways, like, you know, some good stuff to, like, smoke weed to, like, avoid the law. He's like, what I do when I smoke on the go, I take a joint and I break into thirds, little tiny pieces. I smoke them down and I toss them out because I don't want the law. You smoke a whole joint and it all smells up your car, little roaches lying around. No, I smoke a third and toss it out. I call it a bullet. It looks like a twenty-two caliber bullet. <laughs> smoke down a bullet. It's good advice. It works. Like, now, if you're smoking on the go, like, one time we were in Florida, family vacation, and we were in the minivan, he's like, all right, if you're smoking on the go, you can't smoke up the car at all. You always got to stop at one of these do-it-yourself car washes, get out like you're uh, checking the air pressure on your tire, get down, and he has the air pressure thing and everything. He's like, gets down, a little gauge, like, check the air in your tire, smoke down a bullet, and toss it out. Yeah, and be sure to watch the wind, though, because you don't want the smoke to blow out towards the highway. That's where the police are. Be careful. <laughs> 
He was had all these great, you know, great advice. <laughs> Practical advice. But the good times would not last. We eventually grew back apart, but more because of ideology, more than anything else. You know, in a very stereotypical fashion, I went off to college and became like a firebrand, like mean, radical leftist, which in Baton Rouge is just like a moderate Democrat. But... <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. But so, you know, when my dad, like, I remember, like, for sophomore year, I came home, and uh, I was just like, all right, well, I'm not eating, eating meat anymore. I'm not doing that. And I'm not, I'm a vegetarian. And he was just like, it was like a poison-tipped arrow, like, in my dad's heart. It was just like, what? Oh, man, no son of mine's going to be vegetarian. Oh, my God. And it was just like, you know, he was like treason, you know? It was like, and we, the gulf widened again. It was just... And he would always poke fun at me anytime I was around, like where he's like, oh, I hope that salad's good when I'm eating had a face and it was delicious. Da, 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 da. He was saying, like, oh. <laughs> and it just, and it continued to get worse. Like with the invasion of Iraq, I was outspoken about the invasion and he was just like, oh, you gotta support them troops, man. That's the, you know, USA, patriotism. I'm like, they're sending those kids over there to die for oil. It's a sham. It's terrible. Like, you know, and we, it was, it was tense. It was a very tense time to fall on like very radically different uh, you know, ends of the spectrum. And so finally, 2005, I was like, I'm out of here. I'm moving to New York. I'm sick of the conservatism. I want to pursue you know, my dream of being a professional stand-up comedian. I'm out of here. And he's like, can't you just live somewhere like within a, you know, a day's drive? Goddamn, Austin, Texas, or Atlanta, Georgia. I don't know, somewhere. Like, he wanted me to be at least close enough to like, you know, have access to me. I didn't realize it then, but he just wanted to be near me. But I was locked and loaded to NYC, and so like, the gulf widened even more. But then time passes, you know, and you're living in New York, you know, like, you're not surrounded by like, the insane religious right and everything else. Yeah, I mellowed out over time, and he did too. And it got to the point where we kind of started being able to come together again. And he, he would go on conservative rants. But now, you know, we could just smoke a joint and have a few beers and it'd be okay. You know, he'd be like, I don't know if Obama is, is definitely a Muslim, but, but he's certainly a communist. <laughs> I'm just like, Dad, the joint's not a microphone. Pass your shit over here, you know. I even got him a vaporizer for Christmas. So, you know, it's... He's getting too old to smoke. That's the, you gotta, you know, vaporize. So, so it's one of these things, I'm still trying to get him to visit here. After seven years of vegetarian, I actually started eating meat again. So that's when I fully became his son again. Whenever he was like, I could eat some of the, the, the meat from one of the deer that here, one of my brothers killed. You know, I'm like, oh, it's, I'm my son again. And we, you know, we came back together, we come back together on those things, on drugs and eating meat. <laughs> true southerners and I wanted to visit New York but he's like terrified he's just like no I don't think it's safe and I'm just like dad like you have to come visit they deliver amazing weed right to our door it's amazing and you know well we can go out to Prospect Park out in Brooklyn we can get super high but don't worry I'm always looking out for cops out there when I go out there we can go out there and smoke and we'll do just like you always taught me we're gonna keep an eye on the wind always always keep an eye on the wind Thank you. What you doing? Jesus. Daddy almost made me crap. Did you get your homework done? Yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> what? Are you stoned? No. Seriously, you smell like pot. Are you smoking pot? You can tell me. No. You're not using grass? No, you don't use grass. No. Then what's, what's that smell? What smell? It's probably a skunk outside, something, you know. Oh, yeah, sure, skunk. Yeah. I have a, I, what I would describe as a pretty crazy fear of death. Uh, and I think the reason, if I had to pinpoint something why I have a fear of death, is because I was raised by a family who ran a combination ambulance, hearse, and embalming service from our family garages. It was started by my grandparents in the 50s, and my dad took it over in the 80s. He was, and still is, an embalmer. 
Um, before that, he was a medic and has driven an ambulance since he was 13 years old. So by the time my brother and I were born, we were surrounded by ambulances and hearses and cots full of dead bodies. But there was a, a normalcy to it because my dad would go to work across the driveway and he would come back at night or in the middle of the day and he was sort of always around. Our dinner table conversations were probably a little bit different. We would talk about how someone had sneezed in the morning and had an aneurysm or how a roofer had fallen off uh, during a job and cracked his skull open and his brain had rolled out of his head, but he had lived. So we were, you know, always sort of presented with this information that I think made my brother and I understand that life is this huge navigation between life and death. How, you know, the craziest things that you think will for sure kill you, don't kill you. You can live through them. You can be, you know, you're fine. You have a normal uh, life after that. And things that you think would never get you can kill you in an instant. When we were little, if we needed money or anything from my dad, we'd think nothing of walking into the embalming room and he would raise his hands over his head and we would reach into his pocket for money. Or, you know, we would go and talk to him and sit in the corner in this big yellow chair that he had while he embalmed. But as I got older, I did less and less of that just because I I really hated it. (laughs) And, you know... It was something that we all sort of shared. My brother even hated it. He's now an embalmer himself, and he still hates it. But it was how we lived, and it worked really well until I was about 22. When I was 22, I would say that things really started to unravel. And I think they really started to unravel beginning with a conversation that my father and I had in a local bar. I had come home for Christmas, and he asked me if I wanted to meet him for a beer before I went home. So I agreed. You know, we were talking about nothing particularly exciting until he said, What would you say if I told you that I had a girlfriend? Which is just sort of one of those things that you never, ever, ever expect your father to say. So I was pretty taken aback. I didn't I didn't really know what I felt or what I thought. I didn't know. I knew it wasn't a joke because it was just too strange to be a joke. Probably my very first thought was mom is going to she's going to kill you. She's going to murder you and then we'll have to find another embalmer to take care of you. But what I ended up saying to him was you know, I would say I just want you to be happy. And I think because, I think a couple things. I think, you know, I was living in New York and I thought of myself as a grown-up and I thought that I didn't need any sort of semblance of, of family or order because I hadn't really thought through the steps of what that would look like for our family. My dad, in the recent years before that, had been diagnosed with cancer. He had been through radiation a couple times. It hadn't fixed the cancer He had seen a 57-year-old man, which is how old he was at the time, die of cancer, who had a son and a daughter. They were the same ages as my brother and I. And I think it sort of changed his perspective and his values and his understanding of how he should be leading his life. The woman who he had fallen in love with was actually the woman who ran the local morgue. So it was a match made in heaven, I suppose, in a lot of ways. We found out more and more details about her when my mom hired a private investigator. And, you know, sort of our normalcy was redefined at that point. And we became this modern day family of an embalmer and his girlfriend and his wife and his kids, one who lives in New York and one who is taking over the business from him. And I think through the years, I started to see how much this would change our family. I started to see that I would come home for Christmas and he would not be at Christmas. His girlfriend, he and his girlfriend were not obviously welcome at my mom's dinner table. And and they they shouldn't have been, you know. And uh, we would divide holidays and we would try to go see my dad in this little apartment that he and his girlfriend rented at the edge of town and he had one of those little mini Christmas trees that he set up that was sort of at a 45 degree angle on his kitchen table and I think as time passed 
more and more, I just, I sort of missed that order and I missed my family and I missed my dad. I think you could describe my dad in general as this sort of really jovial, magical guy. You know, if you wanted to do fireworks on August 15th, because you wanted to do fireworks on August 15th, my dad would get up in the middle of the night and set fireworks off. He was just one of those guys who always was willing to listen and he would raise one eyebrow and have something maybe totally unrelated to say in response, but you appreciated it anyway. Feeling that absence of him in my 20s felt bigger than I ever thought that it would. So I found myself starting to think about things that I hadn't thought that I would do. I started to find myself thinking, well, maybe to spend some time with him, I could spend some time in the embalming room. And that especially seemed like a viable option because it was really the only time that you could get him away from the girlfriend. It was the only time that you could get an organic conversation like you used to have with him when you were a kid. So when I came home, I started to make that part of my routine. But the time that really, really stands out in my, in my head uh, as a moment that we really shared was the time that we embalmed Tiny. You know, normally I wouldn't embalm with him. I might just sit in the corner and, you know, sort of silently panic. But at this specific time, it really felt like something that I needed to do because I just, I felt like I needed to have some sort of connection with my dad that I hadn't had in a very, very long time. Tiny was a 94-year-old woman who was probably about five feet tall, hence the nickname Tiny. Her real name was Virginia, but my dad said that Virginia was a tall person's name, so she couldn't go by Virginia. And the day that we embalmed her, I can still remember his embalming room, which looked the same all the time anyway, but it's sort of filled with rosary beads and glass eyes and tongue rings and he's got a menu for the local fish fry hung by his phone. So I was sitting there with my dad and I wanted to know why Tiny died because part of my whole thing about navigating life and death is being able to understand, you know, why did this 94-year-old die? And even though she's 94, I can't come to terms with why she had to die. So I looked at her death certificate And it said that she had died of heart failure, which my dad at that point was like, well, everybody dies of heart failure. You know, you have to, your heart has to stop before you can die. But we carried on and I helped him. I stood on the side of the table and helped him hold her head as he nailed her mouth shut so that it would be closed when she had calling hours. I helped him find the carotid artery Uh, He cut into the sides of Tiny's neck, and then he cut into the sides of her legs to flow chemicals in through her neck and in through her groin. And that, I think, is what I was really struck by was after Tiny's blood was gone and after he connected her to the machine and flowed the chemical through her, you could see her body change from gray to peach And I was so aware of how fine that line is between life and death and how she went from appearing almost not human to looking like my grandma. And it was very strange. And I felt a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety and like I really wanted to cry and like I wasn't sure why I was doing this. And then he asked me if I wanted to stitch up her femoral cuts which I did not really want to stitch up her femoral cuts if we're being honest because I was having enough of a hard time just standing next to her let alone touching her but I I did it because he gave me a needle and he took another needle himself and he stood across from me and it was one of those times in your life where you will never forget while you're standing across from your father who is 57 years old has survived cancer but still has some in his blood and has a girlfriend and lives in this weird apartment at the edge of town and has a shitty like half Christmas tree and we are stitching together I'm watching how he does it and I'm holding Tiny's skin and it feels like cold rubber and every time the needle pops through I think about Will this happen to me someday? Will I be dead like this someday? Did Tiny know that she'd be here, that this would be, you know, it's just this 
whole sort of like rush of emotion that I can't really understand. But when I walked away at the end of the day, I think my big takeaway was that I cannot spend my life avoiding the idea of death or avoiding the idea of sickness because there's so much that I'll miss. And this moment with my dad meant so much to me that I would face these things that I'm absolutely horrified of. Because the idea of losing him or the idea of him dying or the idea of not seeing him in an embalming room or otherwise when I come home for a holiday is much greater than my fear of sneezing and dying of an aneurysm in the morning. So I think I decided on that day that I can, I can manage my own fears of death so that I can more appropriately live my life. is Risk. This is Empire of the Sun behind me now. And we just heard from writer Gretchen Mentor, who took a class with us at the Story Studio recently. And in fact, the next story you're going to hear will be by Colleen Hinesley, who also took a workshop with us at the Story Studio. There's a lot going on with the school right now. We're introducing a brand new workshop in September called Storytelling for Personal Growth find your voice and get what you want. Now, this is a class for people who feel like they're very much beginners to all of this. People who feel like, well, I don't have such a background in working on the stage or getting stuff published. I just want to loosen up a little bit and communicate more dynamically in my life in general. There'll be daily practice, journaling, but also in the class sessions, there will be exercises that are specifically about getting more comfortable using your voice, your face, your posture, and dozens and dozens of activities to help you zero in on the story-worthy moments in your day-to-day life and in your history, your biography. So if you're in New York City, here is a very safe, friendly, supportive atmosphere to dip your toes in and ultimately learn how to build stronger connections to others. And a variation of that same idea, we're thinking of creating a workshop called Storytelling for Dating. This would be an evening where you'd have like 30 people in the room. We'd have a separate one for straight people and gay men and gay women. But you'd be in the room with about 30 people. You'd have a chance to share with the whole room and then opportunities to share with people one-on-one. I'd be giving tips and techniques throughout the evening. If you're interested, if you live in New York and you're interested in maybe attending a workshop like that, write to me at kevin at risk-show.com and say, I'm interested, and I'll put you on a list and start to try to put that one together too. And for all our other workshop offerings, our one-on-one coaching over Skype, our business consultation, our custom tailor workshops for staffs of businesses, our video course online, go to thestorystudio.org. In just a bit, we're going to hear from one of the original hosts of The Moth, a beloved man in the storytelling world, Mr. Dan Kennedy. But before that, like I said... 
another of our students from the Story Studio. She's a singer and an actress, and she is Colleen Hinesley with a story we call The Voice. My dad and I were sitting together in the waiting room of the clinic where he was receiving radiation treatments for his lung cancer. And he was really quiet that day, which was unusual for him because he was typically a very gregarious guy. But that day he was really quiet and seemed very sad. So I, of course, was doing my best to try to distract him and making small talk and teasing him and trying to get him to laugh. And he was having none of it. He he wouldn't even look at me, let alone smile. So we just sat quietly for a few minutes. And finally, he started to move around a little bit. And he, he made this gesture with his hand toward his throat. And he said, I can't sing anymore. And that was the only time I ever saw him cry. It's understandable that he'd be upset. He was so sick and he was weak, but really because he had always had a beautiful, booming baritone voice, especially his singing voice. And at that point, his voice had become a ghost of what it once was. It was thinner and bonier, even than his body was becoming. And I had the feeling that he knew before then that his singing voice was disappearing. But I think it was the first time he ever said it out loud. And I know that I was the only one that he ever confided that to. My dad was a classically trained opera singer. He loved Pavarotti and all the opera singers, but he also loved popular music like Frank Sinatra. He loved, you know, whatever was on the radio, kind of in the 60s, the Rat Pack. He just loved it all. And he was always singing in the house. He had a huge record collection. And all of us were always singing, too. We had this big three-story house. We were all just yelling up and down the stairs and singing. And my dad would say, hey, listen to this. And he'd put a record on the hi-fi. And there would be some new song that he'd want us to listen to. When the world I will feel a glow just thinking of you. So the house was always alive with music all the time. And my dad, he was the guy who could work a tune into any situation. He was known for just busting into song in the middle of a conversation. Or if you had a name he could musicalize, he would do it. So if I brought a girlfriend home from school and she'd say, hi, I'm Katie, he would say, oh, K-K-K-Katie, beautiful Katie, you're the only girl that I adore. He was just so charming. And he loved an audience. My parents owned this great big Irish pub in the suburbs of Philadelphia, which was back in the days when the Irish bar was not America's favorite franchise. It was really a unique thing. The name of the place was Fiddler's Green, but we all just called it The Place. Well, in the merry month of May, from me home, I started, left the girls and two were nearly broken hearted, saluted father dear, kissed me darling mother, drank a pint of beer, me grief and tears, the smother enough to reap the corn and leaf, for I was born, got a stout McFarland to banish ghosts and goblins and brand new pair of brogues to rock the love of the bogs and frighten all the dogs on the rocky roads, a double of one to three for five, hunt to hair and turn Every Friday and Saturday night at the place, he would put on a show. He would have a piano player and a drummer, sometimes a singing partner, and people would come from all over to hear him sing. They really would. And he had this knack for remembering people, especially their names. 
And if you didn't have an Irish last name, he would have to give you one. So he'd be on the stage and a guy would walk in and he would yell out from the stage, Dave O'Goldstein, thank God you're here. We've been waiting for you. Have a seat. Have a seat. And he just included everybody in the show. Everybody felt like they were part of the family. And because it was, of course, an Irish place, the repertoire was mostly Irish music. And there were a million songs. There were fighting songs and drinking songs. There were love songs. There were songs about the famine and the troubles. There were these gut-wrenching sad songs about wrongful imprisonment and long separations from your family. But there were also these songs about petty crimes, like, who threw the overalls in Mrs. Murphy's chowder? <laughs> and these were the songs the crowd loved, the sing-along songs. But my dad, his favorite, his passion, was Broadway show tunes. They couldn't pick a better time to start in life. It ain't too early and it ain't too late. Starting as a farmer with a brand new wife. Soon be living in a brand new state. Brand new state. Gonna treat you great. He loved them all. He loved everything from cats to Camelot, the King and I, Carousel, you name it. He loved it. He would always try to work as many as he could into his show. And in fact, the big crowd pleaser was usually the Oklahoma medley, which you can imagine. You're doing fine, Oklahoma. Oklahoma, O-K-L-A-H-O-M-A. Oklahoma! Yeah! Killed every time, seriously. The crowd just loved it. He would also do a patriotic medley, which would have songs like God Bless America and Yankee Doodle Dandy. And he would just get the crowd on their feet and we'd be marching around the place mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the lord the whole bar on their feet parading around the bar he just had everybody like i said everybody was part of the show as for me i was the only one of his six kids that he could ever coax up onto the stage with him to sing and when i was little all he needed to say was Here's our Colleen. And I would come running eagerly up to the stage just to sing a few bars with whatever he was singing. But usually he would just start singing. The sun will come out. And I would run up and just sing tomorrow because that was my favorite song from my favorite musical, Annie. And uh, it was very cute and we loved to sing together. And I was so little, I was maybe five or six. And as I got a little older, I started to get shyer. Partially because I started to recognize that my dad had this beautiful singing voice and maybe I wasn't such a great singer because I was eight. But also, I kind of started to realize at that time that I wasn't the cutest kid on the block. I was kind of unfortunate looking as a kid and I started to be really shy about that. So if my dad realized that I was being resistant to coming up on the stage, he would just look at me and say, sing out, kid, sing out. And I would. I would get up and I would sing out because that's what he told me to do and that's what we did. So over the years, we continued to sing together and when I was finally old enough to legally work in the bar, we really started to sing all the time together and we started to settle into what would become our signature duet. <laughs> and it was called, You're Never Fully Dressed Without a Smile. And it was also from the musical Annie. Every Friday and Saturday night, we would sing this song. He would start. Hey, hobo man. Hey, dapper Dan. Then I'd join in. You've both got your styles together. But brother, you're never fully dressed without a smile. Every weekend, we sang the song. We must have done that song together more than 200 times in my life. And we knew it all down pat. We knew every point where we could riff and wink at each other and smile and do our little patter. And uh, it was really great. The audience loved it. They asked for it every week. And I had mixed feelings about it, though. I remember having mixed feelings because on the one hand, I idolized my dad. I loved singing with him. And I also loved the idea that he wanted to sing with me and that he was proud of me and he liked to sing with me. But on the other hand, by the time I got into my 20s, I was really 
into rock and roll and pop music. I really was not into Broadway tunes. And so secretly, I thought the song was a little lame. And I had that feeling going in. And the other thing is that I was a waitress and a bartender at the place. By the time my dad would get around to saying, here's our Colleen, and we could do our duet, the dinner rush would be over. I would be sweating and disheveled, wearing a dirty apron, reeking of cigarette smoke and French dressing and old dollar bills. And I'd have to go up there and sing with my six foot tall, dapper dad and his sport coat with his baritone. And I just felt a little out of place. And sometimes I was embarrassed, but I always did it. I always sang out because that's what we did. Eventually, I left Philadelphia and I moved to New York. New York, New York, a hell of a town. The Bronx is up and the battery's down, which my father would sing to me every time I saw him. I continued to sing on my own, um, not professionally, but for myself. And although I was very happy, sort of secretly happy, that the opportunities to sing our signature song became fewer and farther between. But now I can't remember the last time we sang together. I can't remember the time when we sang you're never fully dressed without a smile i mean obviously it was before my parents retired and sold the bar it was before the place became a sports bar called screwballs before my dad's cancer and thinking about that day in the waiting room i had been thinking that my father was feeling so terrible because the treatments that were meant to make him better were actually making him feel worse but really the absolute worst thing for him about being so sick was losing his voice, was not being able to sing. Our whole family at that time, we were all still optimistic. We really believed that he was going to beat the cancer, that he was going to get past this. And we were encouraging him to keep up with his treatments. We were taking him to the clinic. We were trying to keep his spirits up. But that day, to me, he said, it's gone and it's never coming back. And I wish that I could say that that day, in that moment, that I sang to him, that I sang for him, but I couldn't. All I could do was sit there and hold his hand silently. And in the weeks to come, which would be his last weeks, I still couldn't sing. Right when my father was losing his voice at a time when I could have and probably should have filled the house with music and singing, I lost my voice too. In fact, we all did. Music left our home entirely. We didn't have a wake. We didn't sing at the funeral. Uh, there wasn't a band at the lunch after the funeral, which for an Irish funeral is completely unheard of. And even for a Hinesley party, not having a band, not having even someone burst into a round of On the Way to Cape May or Take Me Back to Manny Yunk or Danny Boy, we just lost it all. After my father passed away, in those next months, that next year, all I can remember is quiet. I can't remember a moment where I felt happy, where I felt music, where I felt like singing. It was completely silent in my memory, almost like someone hit the mute button on my life. And it took me a long time to get back to it. It took me probably more than a year before I was able to even sing in the shower or in the car. But finally I did. I started to sing again, little by little, with friends, finally in a band. And that felt amazing. That felt like I had found music again, like I had found my voice. 
And I was so happy and so relieved that that had happened. And now it's been about four years since Dad passed away, and the musical Annie came back to Broadway. I went to see it recently with some friends, and honestly, I was dreading it because I had this fear that hearing that music again, hearing our song, would bring back all of that regret and that guilt that I'd been carrying about sending my father so silently into his death. I was afraid that it would reach up and steal my voice again. But sitting in the theater from the time that the opening strains of the music started all the way through to when those orphans were singing, you're never fully dressed without an S-M-I-L-E. I just felt nothing but joy and happiness. And it was as if finally I understood that even though I didn't get to send my father off, I didn't get to sing him out of this life, he would be so thrilled and proud to know that I continue to sing through my own, that I continue to sing out. And I am. I am singing out. Oh, man. Uh, so I'm 16 years old. This is in uh, Northern California, very, very, very rural town. I'm at home, and it's maybe like a Tuesday night doing some homework with my friend Joe. It, this is really just like the end of the innocence. This is probably the one night in my high school career that I did homework. At this age, I still haven't like started drinking. I still haven't started having sex. I haven't started doing anything. So it's really like... <clears throat> I'm actually just sad that I was ever like that and I've wound up like this. Um, just sort of hit me. Uh, so I was like, Jesus, I really was innocent once. Uh, so anyway, Joe and I finished like, doing this. And the one thing I will tell you about Joe, that in this rural community, he's the only friend to this day I've ever had that had a pet bobcat named Maison Lextron. <laughs> This is mostly because his mom would, God bless her, take in any, any animal that was abandoned or injured or anything like that, and one of them happened to be a bobcat. So after school, he would go into his backyard. There would be no you know, bobcat in sight, and then he would, he would yell the name Maison Lextron, and a bobcat would come out of hiding and just jump on him. So anyway, that's a small aside about Joe um, and about where I was living. So uh, I wasn't really supposed to be living there. I had been living in Southern California with my parents when they got the idea to move up there. Wasn't going super hot for me. It was in Southern California, finally. We wore like cool necklaces and cool bracelets and clothes that we thought were cool. And we had hair that we thought was cool. And now that I was living in Northern California, I was being asked why I dressed like a girl um, pretty much daily in the eighth grade, usually while being physically struck. Um, so Joe and I are done doing homework things are really kind of starting to look up in my life because I'm 16 and I can drive now so um, I walk out of the living room and I go hey dad I'm going to give Joe a ride home we're like done doing homework and um, you know why give me the keys if you could <clears throat> sir and uh, he said Joe lives five doors down you know and I was like, yeah, but it's been raining, so I should probably give him a ride. I mean, you know. And he was like, it's not raining now. And I was like, that's just it, though. It's, like, been off and on. And, <laughs> you know, showers, intermittent showers or whatever. So why don't I drive him? And just looking for any excuse to drive. So my dad goes, okay, fine. Here's the keys. Um, like, just be careful, you know. Like, I can't afford for anything to happen to that car right now. And I was like, yeah, like, obviously, you know. <laughs> A little indignant as you are at 16. I'm like tired of being treated like a second-class citizen, Dad. But um, obviously, I'll be fine. So I drive up the road and I drop Joe off, and uh, everything goes just fine with that. And then I make a decision, which is instead of going back home five doors down, 
why don't I take the long way? Why don't I take the loop that goes around back through the new houses or along the uh, ledge of the canyon back there and then back up the highway to my road where my parents live and then I'll be done. So that all starts off just fine. I'm going down the new road. I'm going kind of fast. I'm like, I am kind of getting, I'm like, I'm going 50. This is a residential street. And then I was like, no, I might be going 55. And I'm like staring at the speedometer trying to figure out how fast I'm going. And I'm like, yeah, that definitely says like 55 because there's a little mark in between 50 and 60. And I realize I'm not really looking at the road. And the other thing is I can't figure out how to work a defroster. So I just have a little porthole like cleared out that I'm sort of staring through while staring at the speedometer. Something runs out in front of me. Now, this something turned out to be a rabbit. What I do now, here's my technique for when a rabbit runs out in front of me if I'm driving a car. I keep going straight. And if the rabbit lives and gets off of the road, everything's fine. And if I hit it, then I suppose that would be terrible. But going straight has worked in adulthood. (laughs) Back then, my technique was grab the wheel and jerk it violently to the left, like as far as it'll go. Car goes sideways. I get thrown out of the driver's seat because I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. I hope my parents don't listen to this podcast. And then the back end goes up on this guy's yard, starts ripping out all these pipes and stuff. Everything's crazy. Things come off the car. All the windows are like about to break because I flip. The back end flips over the front end. I'm now upside down. All the windows shatter in. I'm now going down the road upside down on the roof of the car. And all I can think really at this moment was like, this is so embarrassing. (laughs) Like... Like, it totally feels like when you bite it on your BMX bike, but you know, like, this shit's going to have to be answered to. Like, there's no way you can just, like, push it home and, like, see if anyone noticed and, like, put the chain back on when you get to the garage. You're like, there's, like, car parts and wheels and glass and shit all over. So uh, I'm, like, looking at the ground, and I I remember thinking, as soon as the ground stops racing past, climb out through one of the broken windows, like, through the windshield or something. So as soon as it does, I do. I crawl out through the broken windshield, and everybody's lights are coming on, and I'm like, oh, man. Uh," And I don't know why, but I just walk into this older couple's home. They were sort of out on their porch at the moment, or the the neighbors were out on the porch. They had just turned on their lights. I just, their door looked ajar. I walked in, and I just thought, and I, I honestly think, looking back, I think what I was trying to do was just, like, convince any onlookers that I was just going home and everything was fine. You know, like that's how I intended to park on their street. And I got inside and they had a piano and I just sort of walked over and sat down at their piano and started playing. I don't know how to play piano, but I was just like, I almost wonder if I thought like maybe I've hit my head hard enough to learn how to play piano. But I just start playing it and one of them says to me, did you see what just happened out here? Whoever was driving that is dead. Like, I guarantee you they've been killed. And I'm like sort of trying to figure out chords on the piano and I like turn and I go, they're not dead. It was me. (laughs) Which with the piano music, even not being an accomplished player, it's pretty fucking cool right now, I have to say. It was very, like, it was the only Nick Cave moment I've had in my life. He's not dead. It was me. So they go, we're going to have to call your dad. And I'm like, ah, you know, or your parents or whatever. And I'm like, okay. They get the phone number out of me kind of in a haze as I continue to play and just think, this is the last night of my life. I'm just going to play dark songs on a piano. So, um... My dad is, he was not, he's, growing up he wasn't a mean dad, he was a very fair dad, he wasn't a scary dad, but he was an uptight dad of the Eisenhower sort of era type of dad. You know, like if you uh, were eating like walnuts in the kitchen because you saw a bag of walnuts, he'd go, what the hell are you eating those for? And you'd go, I'm just... I'm hungry, so I'm having, ha- having some walnuts, you know? And he'd go, no, those aren't, those aren't to eat like a damn meal. Those are like for a special snack or something. You don't just eat those because you're hungry. And I'd think that's kind of exactly why you eat food. <laughs> but I'd say like, oh, okay, sorry about that. And then like if you were taking out the trash, he would go, is that full? And then you'd go, well, it, 
Yeah, it seems full to me. You knew this was going to be a debate, and you'd go, that's not full. There's still room in there. Don't waste half a trash bag when you got one out there that's already half full. Wait till that one's filled up. So he's this sort of dad. I can only imagine what his position on me flattening his car <laughs> and leaving it upside down in the street behind his house is going to be. I don't think it's going to be a great position. They call. He answers. He comes over. I walk out of the house and just sort of stand by the car, which it just seems embarrassing, but it seems like I should stand here because this is my car. It's upside down. It's wheels and shit are all over your street. I'm just going to stand next to this. And, uh, and he comes up and says, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, I don't care about the car. Are you okay? And I go, yeah. He goes, you were holding your head. Did you hit your head? And I said, no, I, I was just stressed out. So I was going like this because I didn't want to talk to you. I couldn't imagine when you got here. He's like, it's fine. Come on. We just got to take you to the hospital, get checked out, make sure you don't have a concussion or anything. I was like, okay. Maybe the other shoe's going to drop, you know, once I'm like, I don't know how this is going to go down. The next day, I wake up and I think I'm just going to go to the country store and get a Coke and some light candy, like maybe some sweet tarts or something and like chill out today. So I'm leaving. He goes, where are you going? And I said, I'm just going to go up to the country store and get a Coke and some candy, I think, and hang out. And he goes, well, um, why don't you take the take the truck? And I said, it's literally dad. It's like one house past Joe's house it's like six doors away I don't need to drive and he goes just take uh, take the truck and um, he goes if you don't take it now it's going to be too easy to never drive again and I was like what the fuck <laughs> like when did you become Yoda like when did you become like, <laughs> like how did you go from like don't eat the damn walnuts as just some kind of snack or some kind of meal into like we have to get right back into what we're afraid of most. You know, like, how did you become the Zen master? But I was like, this, maybe I did hit my head, or maybe I died, and this is heaven. Anyway, so I was like, all right. So I take the keys for the truck, and I totaled his truck, too. So you really shouldn't... No, that would, I didn't... But wouldn't that be awesome if, like, that's the flip? Like, right now, the master became the student, because guess what? I totaled all of his cars. <laughs> So it's time for Russ Kennedy to learn a little lesson that night. <laughs> it didn't happen, but I, uh, I just drove up the store. I got a Coke. I had some candy. Came home. Everything was fine. And still to this day, sometimes as a grown man, I'll be laying in bed and I'll try to figure out why did that amazing, compassionate turn of just... It was the biggest forgiveness anyone has granted me in this life. It was amazing. How did that come to my dad or why did it come to my dad and I'll still think after like tough things or long things like after writing a book and it comes out I'll start on one right away because I know like man it would be so easy to never do this again thanks
that was Dan Kennedy, who uh, his latest book is the novel American Spirit. And we always absolutely love having Dan on the show. This is Trevor Borden. <laughs> it's Trevor Borden behind me now. Now listen up. Peanut butter, but um sorry for calling you guys peanut butter butt back there. But this is important. It calls for such strong language. Risk is coming to Austin. On August 29th, we are at the Out of Bounds Festival at the State Theater. Next month, September 29th, we're at the Up Theater at Second City in Chicago. But before that, we have our regularly scheduled New York and Los Angeles shows in New York on August 22nd. We have Craig Baldo and Josh Gondelman in Los Angeles on August 22nd. We have Michael Showalter, Greg Proops, and Will Janowitz of The Sopranos and Boardwalk Empire. Whenever you wonder where we might be doing Risk next, just check out risk-show.com. And don't forget to friend us on Facebook and Twitter. Keep up with us. On both places, we're at Risk Show. And on Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And if you like what you're hearing on Risk, we are listener-supported. We really do rely on the help of our listeners and we're a Maximum Fun podcast. We are a part of the spectacular network of podcasts, Maximum Fun. You can donate to keep us going there at MaximumFun.org slash donate. Just earmark your contribution for risk. And that leaves just one thing left to say. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. There is Hey dad, look at me now, can you see me dad, I'm trapped in a trunk